friends, this is Matt. I just wanted to give you a little heads up on what is going on with today's episode. Uh, from time to time, I'm given the opportunity to speak at my local church. And in this case, our pastor had been working on a series of uh, the Old Testament prophets. He was calling it the Dead Prophets Society, which is kind of humorous. But um, as uh, fortune would have it, he approached me about uh, preaching and wanted me to preach on the book of Nehemiah and it just so happened that it came right at the time that we were getting to record the podcast as well and so it kind of gave a little double dip into the book of Nehemiah that we're going to be getting into in the next couple of weeks and so I decided I would just place this in here as sort of a special episode for you to listen to I hope that uh, you get a little something from it I put it here because it kind of was just the way that I encountered the book this time and um, I hope you find it beneficial So with that, I will uh, leave you to it, and I hope that you uh, enjoy it and find something beneficial from it. Thanks for listening. I'm going to be talking today about the book of Nehemiah. If you're not familiar with the book, you'll find it about in the middle of the Old Testament, which is interesting because when you read the Bible chronologically, you find that Nehemiah actually is almost at the very end of the story of the the Old Testament. Uh, It's... The next to the last book, the only thing left behind it is Malachi after that. And so at this point, at this point in the Bible, God has done pretty much everything he can to teach his people everything they need to know before Messiah comes. And at this point, we have seen the Israelites carried away to Babylon. And now we have seen that they have been able to start to return after that 70-year exile that they had. They were made to go away, basically for, for uh, 70 years. And so the book of Nehemiah starts to take place a few years after that exile has been over, around the year 445 B.C. And that kingdom, that Babylonian kingdom, has actually changed hands now from the Babylonians to the Persians. And um, some of the Jews had been allowed to go home, and some of them had decided to stay behind. Um, by this time, a whole new generation of Jews had been born, and most of them had never seen Jerusalem or the Holy Land. They chose to stay where they were established, and they were comfortable. They were satisfied with their lives right where they were, and some of them even found themselves in prominent positions. And so this is where we meet Nehemiah. Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king of Persia at the time. And uh, that king's name was Artaxerxes. That is a mouthful. Try to spell it. You'll probably get it wrong. Uh, But this put him in a unique position of trust with the king. Uh, Literally, Artaxerxes had put his life in the hands of Nehemiah. As cupbearer, you are the one handing him what he's going to drink that day. At a time when poison was rampant, uh, you were expected to know what was going on. And so this put Nehemiah in a really, really tight space with the king. Well, one day, Nehemiah got news from Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. This news distressed Nehemiah to actual tears. He literally mourned for days. And he wanted to talk to the king about it But first, he needed to pray, because if you know anything about those kings, they could be a little grumpy. And 
And so when the king sees Nehemiah seeming troubled, you don't want to see the guy feeling nervous or weird around you when he's the guy who's handing you what may or may not be poisoned. And so when the king asks him what is up, um, it gives it gives Nehemiah, he's going to have the, the, uh, the opportunity to ask the king about this. But first, he realizes that he needs to pray about it. He says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering in your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Nehemiah knew full well that if he was going to go down a path with this, he had to start by talking to God first. But Nehemiah was ultimately given permission to return to Jerusalem. He was given letters of passage because this trip was about 800 miles, and 800 miles on foot is going to take you a little while. Um, And there are all kinds of bandits and trouble in the way. Plus, the king had decided to give him gold and silver and stuff to take back with him, and so he was going to need protection. And so he had these letters of passage that were going to keep the surrounding uh, kingdoms from hopefully... um, Trying to, trying to stop him, but also uh, gives him some protection on the road. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he takes some time and he views these broken down walls and the burned down gates. And you can see at the time, the city and the temple are still there. They had started to rebuild. The temple had been rebuilt. Um, but it was a pale comparison to what had once been there. And so when Nehemiah gets to the people there and he's talking to them, he gives them a message. He says, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. He wasn't happy with what he saw. Everything that he had seen was broken down. Everything he knew or expected to see when he was there was nothing like what it had been before. We recently, the the, the Christian church, not just us, not not just here, but... Uh, the Christian church, really, we kind of recently had our own exile. We experienced our own exile recently. I don't really need to name it. I was actually uh, advised not to because we're tired of talking about it. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) But um, we literally found ourselves forced away. Our building was empty for months We weren't allowed to worship together. YouTube and Zoom became our new place of worship. It reminds me of a text from actually Ezra. I know I'm talking about Nehemiah, but it reminds me of a text in Ezra. It says, many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundations of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. See, just like that old temple, Solomon's temple was gone. The new temple that was built was nothing, was nothing like the old one other than some basic shapes and functions. But in, four, in, in, in terms of, of just grandeur, it was, it was next to nothing. And the people who remembered the old te- temple were so disappointed with the new one that it upset them. But yet some people kind of liked it. They were, oh, great, we have the temple back. So in, in a lot of ways, I, I see some, some similarities here where Electronic means of meeting seemed like an acceptable solution at the time. Some really loved it, and some absolutely hated it. And we found that, like the Israelites, many 
had longed to return, but some got comfortable at home. And when we finally returned to the building, we found that church wasn't the same way that we had left it. Our worship services felt different. Our Sabbath school classes weren't the same. And just like the exiled Jews, not everyone returned. The Jews had been in exile because God had put them there. It was intended for long-term good. You see, they had gotten so comfortable in their position that they had started to neglect their relationship with God. They got so comfortable that they thought they could do pretty much anything they wanted to do and still claim to be God's people. And meanwhile, God is watching them saying, you are not acting like my people at all. Their temple that they had revered so much, they had allowed to be misused, abused. They'd allowed it to be torn apart. Uh, It was being used for pretty much everything you could think of besides worship. At some points, it was a stables. At some points, it was a brothel. It It was pretty ugly what it was being used for. And so God had to remove them from the situation. But now, after the exile, a new generation was in place with some of the leftover leadership of the old generation coming with them. It gave them a new lease to follow God and serve his kingdom in ways that hadn't been done before. Much like our church, we were sent away because changes need... Were we sent away? Because changes need to be made? Maybe there's a question we need to ask. Is this why God allowed that to happen to the church? And again, I don't mean only ours, because it was the worldwide church that went through this, and we found that we had to reconsider ourselves. We had to reconsider what we valued. We had to reconsider what we really wanted. And so maybe, maybe this was why God allowed that to happen. Maybe we needed to have a little correction time, a little time out. Our return brought a mixture of veteran and new members with a vista of possibilities in front of us. Would we have new ministries? Would we have a new worship style? Uh, Would we have new ideas? What new ideas might be presented that could result in some amazing results? Well, Nehemiah gave a call to the people. After all, this is why he was there. He says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. You see, having that wall in such disrepair was an embarrassment. The people used to come from miles around just to see the grandeur, to see the temple, to see the palace. You might remember, like, Solomon came in, and, he, you know, when people came, he'd be like, come on, look at everything I have. Look at it. Just come take a look. People came from all around to see it, and now it's literally surrounded with rubble. And as they begin to build, and you read in chapter 3 of Nehemiah, you start to, you, uh, chapter 3 really recounts basically the entire the entirety of building the walls, or at least much of building the walls. I'm going to read just a little bit of it to you here. Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur son of Imri built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Has... I can say that, Hasanah. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Baana, also made repairs. 
The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. And the chapter goes on and on and on, and it tells about different people in different groups who all took uh, a part in working on the wall. And it's interesting because unlike other parts of the Bible, there is no mention of coercion. There is no mention of guilt put on anybody. People simply stepped up. They, they worked on the wall because they believed in the cause. Everyone simply found a spot near them and started working. And this is important because it meant that Nehemiah wasn't having to do the job all by himself. It would have been an impossible task for a single person to rebuild this wall all by themselves. And so for everybody to jump in and start working was a monumental task. It was a huge task that had to, had to take place. And the people who worked on the wall, they did it right where they were. They didn't have to go another part of the city because the wall needed to work right in front of their zone. And everyone's work made it possible for their neighbor to have something to build onto. There were no gaps left because everyone found a space to fill. What part of our wall can we each find to build? We don't all have to do the same things, but we all have opportunity to do something. Maybe you could find yourself called to lead a ministry. Maybe you're called to lead a Sabbath morning study group or a small group in the, in the middle of the week. Maybe you're called to take part in children's ministries. Maybe you're called to lead a worship team. You know, we see our, our worship teams are very important in, in what we do, and you see that we have a lot of overlap, and we could probably use some more because I know they probably get tired. <laughs> um, any number of other forms of outreach that possibly you could lead out in. Or maybe you're called simply to participate in a ministry. Maybe you could help with the slides and the audio. Uh, maybe you could be a greeter. Maybe you can attend a study group. Um, we have Sabbath morning study groups here every Saturday morning, 10 o'clock. Um, I'm going to be starting a new one in a couple weeks. Yay! Shameless plug. <laughs> Thanks, Tracy. <laughs> Shameless plug there. Um, you could come to men's group. We have men's group here every Monday night at 6 o'clock. Or excuse me, 6.30. 6 o'clock is too early. We're working. <laughs> 6.30. Every Monday night at 6.30, we have men's group here. And men, you are welcome to be here. We'd love to see you. Uh, women's group is here every other week at 6.30. They're not as dedicated. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know they're, they're busy. Uh, they, get a, they get a good group here, too. But every other week, we have women's group here at 6.30. Um, there's other small groups during the week that you could be a part of. I know people would, would love to have you, or maybe you start one of your own. Um, there's, we have groups like Pathfinders and Faith, and we have people who uh, worship, or minister to the Guadalupe Center that you could be part of. Um, there's, just, there's any number of things that you can be a part of and help out in those ministries. Maybe you're simply called to attend social events and special services when we, have, when we have those here. Seriously, honestly, just showing up and being a part of the group is a huge part of the ministry. Simply being here, encouraging your brothers and sisters, getting to know your brothers and sisters, meeting them, having a little fun with them is a huge part of building a church family. Simply being here is an enormous, an enormous thing uh, for rebuilding 
uh, for building our walls. Because we get strength in numbers. Having others here helps us to feel like we're in the right place. And one of the simplest things we can do, maybe it's not the simplest thing, let's be honest with it, but it's, it's not that hard, is just invite someone. Invite someone to come and be a part of these things as well. Especially those social, those social things. Like our trunk or treat that is going to be happening. There's another shameless pug. Invite people to the trunk or treat. Invite those kids to come have candy. I'm telling you, you know, I know I, people are, I don't celebrate Halloween. I was like, hey, I don't either, you know. But I do give out candy on Halloween. Why? Because my neighborhood is inundated with children that night. And I mean inundated. If I would have thought ahead, I would have had the video. I have a video from my house roughly five-ish, maybe a few more years ago. The video goes for a good three minutes, and it is nonstop. And when I say nonstop, I mean nonstop children at my door. As fast as we could put out the candy, there are kids. Boom. Boom. Am I lying? Yeah. And so that is, I mean, seriously, that is a night. Yeah, I know we don't, we don't like what it represents and I'm with you on that. Um, but it is a night when our community is out in force. They're looking for some sort of interaction. May not be the interaction we want, but if we've been paying any attention to things that we talk about to, to, Things Pastor Ricky talks about, we know that people, whether they know it or not, are constantly looking for that connection to God. And sometimes they find it in places that we wouldn't look. And if we're in those places that they wouldn't look, or if we're in those places, yeah, that, that we wouldn't look, we can find them and we can start to lead them into the right directions. And so inviting people to these sort of things and, in, and participating um, is another way that we can uh, be doing something for that wall. Now, not everyone was happy with rebuilding of the wall. There were a couple of guys that are specifically named in the story, named Sanbalat and Tobiah. I don't know how these parents come up with these names. Sanbalat and Tobiah. They were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Now, in the story, there is no indication at all that they gave two figs about these people until they were starting to build the defenses. Why? Because so long as the defenses are down, the adversary doesn't care about you at all. Not at all. But Nehemiah said to these adversaries, he said, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. When the adversary comes to give us trouble, he shouldn't get free real estate. Sometimes we can let the opposition get into our heads. We can start to feel like our efforts are futile or having no effect. Or we may even be led to believe that we're doing the wrong thing when outside influences try to break us down. But if we stay focused on Jesus and remain true to his call and answer when he calls, the adversary won't be able to take up space or squat on our property. We cannot allow him to tell us that we're doing the wrong thing. We cannot allow him to discourage us. We have to keep defending against the opposition. When Sanballat Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead 
and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Our adversary will not be pleased to see our progress. Like the Israelites, opposition should be met with vigilance and prayer. Notice I didn't say we just have to pray about it. We don't, we, yes, we have to pray about it, but we also have to be vigilant. We also have to meet the threat. And Nehemiah's next thing he says here, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. We need to cast away our fear of the adversary. We need to be ready to fight for our families. Do we understand the consequences if the wall doesn't get built? This isn't just about church pride. It's about the very existence of our loved ones. That is what is at stake. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. The more we work on the wall, the more our Sanballat and Tobiah will know that their efforts are fruitless because God will thwart them. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. See, as we build, we have to expect attacks from the adversary. But if we're building as a cohesive force, those attacks will be met with the weapons of our neighbors. You see, when you would go into warfare and these guys would have their big shields and their big spear, that shield was protecting the guy next to them as much as it was protecting them. That spear was defending the guy next to them as much as it was defending them. They weren't there alone. They were creating a barrier and they were working together Nobody had to do it alone. Nobody was on their own. Everybody was protected. Everybody was fighting. Will our wall be completed? So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. Remember, this wall had been destroyed. Destroyed. In 52 days, that's barely over a month and a half, they rebuilt the wall. Working together makes the work go swiftly because no one is having to pick up any slack. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. When our wall is built, those on the outside will notice. The temple will be safe. The adversary may not stop attacking, but those attacks will be met with strong defenses. Why do we build walls? Usually the answer that you're going to hear is to keep people out. And it's unfortunate, you know, there's been a lot of talk about a wall down on a particular border. And a lot of people have the feeling that it's to keep people out. But that's not why we build walls. We don't build walls to keep people out. We build walls to protect what's inside the wall. It's what's inside the walls that is the most important. The temple was the most important, the most valuable thing in Jerusalem. The temple is what made Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The temple was where God and man could meet in the plan of salvation. This was where God wanted people to come and and interact with him. You are the temple. That needs to be protected. 
The Holy Spirit is in each one of us. We are where God and man meet. Do you wonder if you have the Holy Spirit? Stop wondering, because Jesus promised that he was going to give us the Holy Spirit. Each and every one of us has the Holy Spirit. We were talking about this in men's group this week, whether or not we have the Holy Spirit. Don't wonder. You have the Holy Spirit. The question is, how much do you want the Holy Spirit? The more you ask for the Holy Spirit, the more the Holy Spirit will will work through you and come to you. But don't wonder if you have the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of God. You are the temple of God. And you are what the wall is here to protect. Because people, it is people, are what is most valuable in the church. And people need the protection of our wall. And one more thing about walls is walls have doors. Why do walls have doors? So that we can invite people in. We have a way to let people in. Because when the wall is built, inside the wall is a safe place. When it's built and maintained, the wall is a safe place. Nehemiah was devastated about the state of the wall around Jerusalem. He knew that having the wall in a shambles left the city not only looking neglected, but it also left the city unprotected. Pride and complacency had led to the exile of the Jews. They hadn't appreciated what they had, and they were eventually forced to give it up. But when they got the opportunity, they joined forces and quickly rebuilt the wall to protect the temple. We also found ourselves having to do without, and it made us appreciate what we had been missing. Now that we have it back, much like the Jews, we find that we have some repairs to make. Some of our defenses are down. We have gaps in the wall that need to be rebuilt, and we can rebuild them. It will take all of us. Some will be directly working on that wall, and the rest of us will need to be there to supply their defense. Our adversary won't like this. I don't care. I hope you don't care. We will defend each other, and Jesus, leader of heaven's army, will defend all of us. The wall can be built. We can build it. We can protect our temple and feel confident in having others join us so they can be safe too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you brought each and every one of us here. You've given each and every one of us the spirit. You have made each and every one of us your temple. We are where you come to meet. You're in each and every one of us. And each and every one of us need that protection, Lord. And as the wall needs to be built, Lord, may we be inspired to build it. May we be inspired to work where we are, brick by brick, little mortar here, little mortar there, whatever it takes. Lord, you have put us in the position that we need to be in. And we can do this. We can do this with your help. We do this for you. And Lord, as the wall gets built, we pray that as as we grow to be a more and more of a safe place that others will see the wall and be inspired and want to be inside and be a part of it too. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.